just uh, before we begin the shir this evening, I wanted to mention that in Mitzvahem uh, for this shot this weekend, I'll be in London, and we'll be uh, giving a shir in the Neir Yisrael Shul, in which is in Hendon, on this coming Thursday evening from eight till nine on the topic of the three weeks. So if anyone is tuning in from London or if you know people in London, um, so feel free to let them know Neil Yisrael this coming Thursday, uh, 8 till 9. So this week, we finish off the Chumash of Bamidbar and And we have the two parshas of Matos and Masse. So the parsha of Matos opens with the uh, topic of Nidorim, of vows and oaths, which we have uh, dealt with in the past. But I'd like to actually begin our discussion this evening with the section that immediately follows that opening parak. That is Perik Lamed Aleph. So Perik Lamed is the uh, sugya of Nidorim, questions of Nidorim, and... Lamed Aleph already is the war with Midian. And in Perik Lamed Aleph, by Dabe Hashem al-Mashel Emor, Pasuk Beis reads, Nekom Nikmas Bnei Yisrael. Exact or extract the vengeance of the Jewish people, Me'ez HaMidyanim, from the Midianites, Achar Te'asef El And after that, you shall be gathered to your people. That is to say, after that, you will pass from this world. So Moshe is told, exact the vengeance of the Jewish people from Midian. <laughs> and after that, your time will come to leave the world. This is the vengeance for everything that the Midian had done, as recorded in the end of Parshas Balak, and their, their Eitzah with, uh, with uh, Bilam, etc., and the question, the parshanut question, the basic question that we need to ask is and consider <coughs> what is the relationship between these two phrases? Go to war against Midian, then you'll be gathered to your people. How do they relate to each other? Although the matter might seem to be quite uh, straightforward, as if to say, this is the last thing you'll do, and after this, then your time has come. But the Meshachachma <coughs> has a somewhat different approach to this matter. And Meshachachma says that the relationship between these two phrases is that it's imperative that war be waged against Midian while Moshe is still alive. And the reason why is because if war is only waged against Midian, and if vengeance is only taken from Midian after Moshe has passed away, it could give rise to a misconception, to a misunderstanding. And that is <coughs> that as long as Moshe was alive, the Midianites would be protected from the retribution for their wrongdoings. 
And where does that protection come from? From the fact that Moshe uh, grew up with them, and Moshe has mishpacha there, and he lived there for a while, and therefore they have some type of special consideration which exonerates them or mitigates their, against their wrongdoing. That misunderstanding cannot be allowed to occur. But it would happen if the war only uh, begun after Moshe passed away. And therefore Hashem says to Moshe, you need to wage war against them before you leave the world so that that wrong message does not come out. If they are enemies of the Jewish people, if they pose to, uh, danger and damage <coughs> to the Jewish people, then they're deserving of retribution, regardless of, of uh, your relationship with them. So in other words, just to be clear, again, we phrased it or framed it as a, as a parshanut question, because the point now when Hashem says, wage war against them, after that you will pass from the world, is not the time has come to wage war against them, be aware that once that happens, you will pass from the world, but it's almost reversed. The time has come for you to pass from the world. Before that happens, you need to see to it that war uh, is waged against Midian. <coughs> so this is the very important uh, comment of Meshachachma, that there's no uh, special consideration given to Midian, regardless of the fact that, that Moshe lived there and he married uh, someone from there, etc., the comment of Meshachachma is almost finished. There's just two words left. And they are, Ve'ayin ba'medrash. Look into the medrash. Well, if Meshachachma says look into the medrash, we have to look into the medrash. And the medrash that he's referring to is in Bamid Rabba. And it's actually on Pasuk Gimel, where... Moshe says, or more correctly, just one moment, Pasuk Vav, Vayishlach Osam Moshe. Moshe sends them out to war, but he himself does not lead them out to war. And the Medrash is somewhat perplexed by this, because commenting on the words Vayishlach Osam Moshe, three lines from the Medrash, Amar HaKadosh Baruch Hu Moshe. Hashem originally said to Moshe, Nekom Nikmas, <coughs> exact vengeance from Midian. That's directed to Moshe, implying, You need to do it. But he sends other people to do it. Who does he send in charge of them? Pinchas, Ben Elazar, as, as the Pasuk says. <coughs> so if Moshe is told to do it, why does he delegate the war? Says the Medrash, because. Ella, Shiniskadel, Be'eretz Midian. Moshe grew up in Midian. Amar, he said, It's not correct. It's not appropriate that I antagonize someone who did a kindness to me. Hamashal Omer, as the famous Mashal says, A well from which you have drunk. Don't throw stones into that well. So the Medrash is addressing seemingly the very same question of the Meshachachma. Namely, what about, here? war is on the cars for Midian, but Moshe has a, a positive history with Midian. And he, he lived there and he grew up there and they, they took him in. Should that change anything? And the Medrash says, absolutely. 
Moshe has been told to go to war, seemingly directly, but, it, but he can't. It's not Derech Eretz. And he sends Pinchas instead. <coughs> now the, the Meshachachma directed us to this Medrash. And yet the Medrash seems to be saying exactly the opposite to Meshachachma. The Meshachachma's point was, do not think that Midian is deserving of special consideration. The war will not take place after Moshe died. It will take place before he died. So that no one should think, oh, if only Moshe was alive, this, they, they never would have been uh, campaigned against. Don't think that. It's not true. But then he directs us to the Medrash, which says, Moshe grew up in Midian. So he sends Pinchas instead. And perhaps one might think, that the Meshachachma is saying, I've taken my path, the Medrash takes its path, we'll both live side by side, even though we're saying the opposite to each other. However, Rev Cooperman, in his uh, commentary to Meshachachma, explains that that is not the intent of Meshachachma. On the contrary, Meshachachma's words and the Medrash's words are not in conflict with each other. They complement each other in a very nuanced way. We see the delicate balance here. Because really there are two questions. Number one, focusing on Midian. Do Midian deserve to be punished for what they've done recently to the Jewish people? Absolutely. Should anything stop them from being punished? No. Should anything delay them that punishment from happening? No. So from a point of view of Midian... They are deserving of, of what comes, and nothing makes a difference to that. But now there's a second question. Not whether the war should happen and when, but who should lead it? And at this point, we look at Moshe. Moshe says, I grew up there. It makes no difference to them if I'm the one leading the war, but it makes a difference to me. And here you have this uh, amazing picture, this composite picture, whereby we see where does it make a difference? The kindness they did to Moshe. It doesn't stay any retribution, but Moshe, it's not Derek Herod's for Moshe to be involved. Very interesting, again, it's a nuanced uh, balance, as we say, <coughs> in terms of what has to happen, when it has to happen, and who needs to make it happen. As we move on to Periclamid Bays, because in the wake of all these wars, a lot of land becomes available, and that is the discussion of the famous Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruuving, which takes effectively all of Periclamid Bays. And Periclamid Bays starts with that, Umik Nerav, Gad and Ruuving had much cattle, there's a lot of pasture, they thought they'd put two and two together and approach Moshe. <coughs> and indeed, Mitz Hashem. In a few, few moments' time, we will have a, um, a look at the psukim because there is a lot to see within the psukim. But before we get to the negotiations between these two tribes and Moshe, there is a pasuk which is famous for quite a different reason, and that is pasuk Gimel. B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain <coughs> approach Moshe and they start to initiate the conversations. Pasuk Gimel reads, Ataros v'divon, v'yazer v'nimra, v'cheshbon v'elalei, u'savam u'navo u'va'on. It's either very difficult to translate this Pasuk, or it's actually very easy, because 
It's a list of names. So far, it's really just a, a list of areas. As they go on to say in Pasuk Dalad, these are the areas that have been conquered. There's a lot of pasture here. We have cattle. Perhaps we, we can stay on this side. But let's go back to Pasuk Gimel, which is just the list of names. Ataros, Vidivon, etc. Why is this Pasuk so famous? Because it is mentioned within the context of something which is a halacha on a weekly basis. It's discussed in Maseches Brochos on Davches. And that is the concept of reviewing the Parsha every week, what's called Shnai Mikra Ve'echad Targum. Twice the Pasuk, once the Targum. <coughs> in the expression of the Gemara, a person should always complete his parshas with the Tzibur, that is to say, at the time when the Tzibur is reading them, that week. Twice the Pasuk, twice the, the Scripture, and once the Targum. Even the, the Pasuk of Ataros V'divon, one should also do that. So all of a sudden, our Pasuk has, has a great yichus. It has somehow has been singled out as the Afilu verse in this din. Even the Pasuk of Ataros V'divon. And this is brought in uh, in Hilchah Shabbos, in Shulchan Aruch, Simen Aruchayim, Simen Reish Pei Hei. What's Shnai Mikra Echad Targum all about? The two Mikra and the one Targum. What's it all about? Why two Mikra? Why one Targum? So there is a classic explanation of this mitzvah, and in the Gemara extols the virtue of this mitzvah. The Gemara says that whoever does this, He's, uh, it's a skula for Arichus Yomim, and uh, in an age where skulas, it's possible to trip over them on the way to anywhere you're going, to find a skula in the Gemara is, um, that's a find. That, that's one to look out for. Not that the others aren't, but this one is. And what's Shnai Mikra all about? <coughs> the Sefer Mate Moshe which is a halachic work. It's authored by a student of the Marshal. So the Matemosha says these three reviews correspond to the fact that the Torah was received by the Jewish people on three occasions. That is to say, uh, and this brings us to the famous discussion of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael, which the Gemara speaks about in a number of places, and we take on like Rabbi Akiva. The Torah was first transmitted to the Jewish people at Sinai. The whole thing was given at Sinai. Vinishnu and was given again in Ohel Moed. And a third time on the plains of the plains of Moab. So corresponding, says Mate Moshe, to the three times that we received the Torah in our formative Kabbalah Satorah years, those are the three times that a person, the threefold review of the weekly parsha corresponds to those that threefold receiving of the Torah. And moreover, says Mate Moshe, <coughs> it's for this reason that the third time is Targum. We don't just read the parsha three times, but the third time is Targum. Why? Because what is Targum? It's explanation. And isn't it so that in the beginning of Chumash Devarim, which describes Moshe's transmitting of the Torah in the plains of Moab, 
it says, Ba'avros Moav, Ho'il Moshe Be'eres HaTorah Hazos. Moshe in, involved himself more in explanation of the Torah the third time round than he had done the first two times. And therefore, in the same way that Moshe himself, so to speak, he transmitted the Torah first, Shnai Mikra, of course, there were many details, but the Targum, the additional um, discussion took place the third time round. So too for us, <coughs> we have the first two of the Pasuk, and the third time is Targum. That's the Mate Moshe. So it's fascinating to see Rabbi Akiva's statements, which for us we may have thought is a historical statement, Ba'alma, that is to say, what was, was, we received the Torah three times, very nice, but it reverberates in our weekly experience through, through the threefold reading also, two Mikra and one Targum. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky has quite a different view of this mitzvah of Shnai Mikra Ve'echa Targum. In fact, for him, it's not so much two of the Pasuk and one of the Targum, but rather you read the Pasuk and then you read it again with the Targum. That's the, that's the divvying up. The first is to read and then read again with the Targum, giving you a total of two Mikra and one Targum. Why do we read first by itself and then read and translate? Go back to read and translate. Because, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, there are two separate mitzvos when it comes to Torah Shebichtav. That is to say, the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, what do you have to do in order to fulfill it? Here, there is a major difference between Chumash, or perhaps by extension Torah Shebichtav, and other. Generally, <coughs> if you say words of Torah, but you don't know what you're saying, so, so you haven't really done anything because you, you don't understand it. It's just words that you're saying. You can enunciate the words, but that's not the mitzvah of Talmud Torah. That's true, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, but when it comes to Chumash, there is a special mitzvah of reading the words. It is a discrete and distinct mitzvah in and of itself. It's called Mikra, because as Rashi says in because there's a mitzvah to read it. And Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, and by the way, the, the, the first Lubavitcher Rebbe in the Shulchan Aruch HaRav says uh, 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 almost the same thing, that when it comes to Chumash, the reading of the words is a mitzvah. Now, of course, if you understand them, that's the general mitzvah of Talmud Torah. And therefore, says Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, we do both. First, you read it. And what are you fulfilling when you just read the Pasuk and you don't even translate it? The mitzvah of reading a Pasuk in the Chumash. It's its own mitzvah. It's already a fulfillment of a mitzvah. Then what? There's more to do. So we go back. We read again and translate. And there you have Limud Torah, Kriyasa Torah, the reading of the Torah, and learning Torah. That's what's taken care of between these, um, these two types of readings. The first by itself, the second with the Targum. So these are some very interesting perspectives on the well-known mitzvah of Steinmeikra ve'echa targum. <coughs> the only thing that remains for us to discuss is vasepes atoros and divon. How did atoros and divon get this special mention in the Gemara? You've got to do two, two readings, one targum, even atoros with divon. What, what's the point of the even? Rashi says, very simply, that Something like Ataras Vedivon, there's 
there isn't really much to explain, it's just a place. So one might have thought that you don't really need to do anything other than read it. Because what's the Targum of Ataros? Probably Ataros, it's the place. What's the Targum of Divon? Probably Divon. So you aren't, there isn't really anything to translate. So maybe one have thought, you don't need to do the third time round. It's certainly not his Targum. To that end, the Gemara says no. Even Ataros for Divon. Even if there's no uh, meaningful addition, seemingly, with the translation of something like a place, you still need to do three times, the third time with the Targum. However, other, other Rishonim, Tosos in fact, and others, <coughs> have a simple Shiloh here. And that is, why do we wait until the end of Chumash Bamidbar to find words that the Targum is the same as the Pasuk? I mean, as soon as you see, so in the beginning of Chumash Shemos, Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavon. What's the Targum there? Probably something like Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavon. I mean, they're just names. So in other words, you meet it relatively early on. Go through the, uh, the, the, the 70 nations that came out of Noah in Parshas Noah. That's a lot of non-Targum. So what's so special about the Ataras Fatib. And that's in it. why wait until the end of Bamidbar to highlight these cases. And that's why certain Mephorshim point out that in the version of Unculus that we have for this Pasuk, there is a Targum. And it's actually nothing like what you'd expect. <clears throat> and some say it's from the Targum Yerushalmi, this uh, specific uh, Pasuk. Again, we're in Perik Lamed Beis, Pasuk Gimel. And the Pasuk is Ataras Vadivan, etc., etc. Unculus, or the, the Targum, it says, Machlelta o Malbeshta, Verchumrin, Ubeis Nimrin, and so on and so forth. That doesn't sound a lot like Ataros and Diva. I mean, we, we, how is that, <coughs> how is that, the, 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 the translation of these things? It doesn't even sound like the Aramaic version of those, which very often, although one shouldn't get used to it, can simply be a matter of putting an aleph on the end. So where are these completely different names coming from? Rabbeinu Bachya explains that the names Ataros and Divan that we have in our Pasuk were not the original names of these cities. They were names that were given by the Jewish people. But why did the Jewish people rename these cities? Because, says Rabbeinu Bachya, originally the names that they had were names, they were named after Avodazar. And they did not want to perpetuate those names. So they, when, when they conquered these territories, they changed the names of the places. What were these original names? Do we have any idea? We do, says Rabbeinu Bachya. That's what the Targum is informing you. That's why these names are different, because these were the original names. These places were originally called Machlalta and Malbashta and etc. But they're not called that anymore. The Jewish people renamed and gave them Jewish names. Atarot, Divon, etc. That's what is behind the discrepancy between the names in the Targum and the names in the Pasuk. So... So, says Rabbeinu Bachya, if the whole reason 
why they renamed these places is because they didn't want them called after Avodah Zarah. They prefer those names to be forgotten, so then perhaps one shouldn't mention them within the context of Maybe Unculus needs to record them for posterity, but in terms of our, our yearly uh, review, the whole idea was to replace these Avodazara names. So maybe once they've been replaced, they shouldn't be mentioned again. And that, says Rabbeinu Bachia, is why the Gemara says that no. It's in the Targum. If they're different names, they're Avodazara names, but you've got to know what they were originally. You need to realize what happened. And even though you'll be saying names of Avodazara places, it's all part of the Torah in terms of knowing um, the original names of these places. So these are very interesting discussions with regards to uh, and specifically Ataris Vedivon, as mentioned in our Parsha. I will mention just uh, before we move on to the next uh, item, and that is that there is a well known remez, allusion to the context, to the concept of Shnai Mikor And it's much earlier in the Chumash. The Gemara doesn't mention it, but Balaturim and others do. <coughs> it's in the beginning of Chumash Shemos. Because Chumash Shemos begins with the two words, Ve'ele Shemos. That's how it starts. Ve'ele Shemos B'nei Yisrael. These are the names. The words Ve'ele Shemos, which have four letters each, Vav Alev Lamed He, Shin Mem Vav Taf, or Rosha Tevus. Of what? Ve'ele. Ve'chayav Adam La'avor HaParsha. A person is obligated to go through the Parsha. Shemos. Shnaye Mikra, the Echad Targum. So the Eile Shemos, those eight letters, <coughs> are an allusion to the idea of already of the mitzvah of Shnaye Mikra, the Echad Targum. And many Mepharshim want to know, again, of all places, why would the Torah choose the beginning of Chumash Shemos to allude to us that there's a concept of reading the Parsha twice? and translating once. Shemos is the beginning of the Chumash, but it's not the beginning of the Torah. Find a way to allude to it in the, in the beginning of Bereshus. We'll get all five Chumashim. So what's special here about the beginning of Eilish Shemos? And one of the uh, great Tamil Chachamim of Yerushalayim, Rav Zev Freund is his name. He's the Rav of, uh, of uh, one of the shuls in Bayt Vagan. Happens to be the shul that I'm a member of. Says as follows. A very wonderful interpretation. <coughs> the beginning of Chumash Shemos really sees a transition from what you could call the early generations of the Jewish people, Yaakov and his sons, to later generations within two or three generations. As we know, the Pasuk says, Vayomas Yosef Yosef, his brothers, that old generation died out. The next generation was different. And they tried to insinuate themselves too much into Egyptian culture. And, and therefore, the, there was backlash <coughs> in the form of the Egyptian persecution, which might not have been so severe, but they didn't keep themselves distinct. But what happened? Where was the breakdown? Are they not familiar with the traditions of their parents? Are they not familiar with the values of their parents? Why did they let them go? We're speaking obviously in very uh, simplistic terminology, but something happened. And how did it allow to happen? They know that these, they know these things exist. 
But the point is, <coughs> the Jewish, the others grew up in, in Canaan. The Shvatim grew up in Canaan. And all of their associations with the special way that they live are with that place. And they've got their own community there. But all that has changed. Because now they're in a new place, new customs, a new milieu. And now what? Can the Torah fit here? We're not familiar with the Torah here. How does it, how will it work? How can the Torah guide us here? It's, it's, if you have a rigid sense of what the Torah is, it can't be applied to anything other than the way that you originally knew it. What is the concept of Shnai Mikra Ve'echa Targum? <coughs> says Refoint. Shnai Mikra Ve'echa Targum is the way for the Torah to guide you through life. You have to do two things. Firstly, read it twice. Read it and read it again. To be well-versed, to be knowledgeable, to be fluent. And then you need to do something else. You need Targum. You need to translate it. You need to know how these laws and these ideas and these concepts and these values are able to fit in and, and guide you in terms of where you are now because <coughs> it's different. Than it's, not, it's not the Haim. It's new shores. And it's for this reason that the allusion to the mitzvah of Shnaim Mikra Ve'echa Targum takes place in the beginning of Shemos. Because Shemos is the type of situation where you need it. And while it's true that often things are lost in translation, that cannot compare to that which is lost if there's no translation. And this was the, the breakdown whereby the early generations, they still had their, their practices, but the, within one or two generations, they didn't see how it could translate to where they are now. And without the Targum, the Mikra also was left behind. They begin to try and uh, become part of the fabric of Egyptian society with all the disastrous consequences that ensued. So these are... Um, very, uh, I think, thought-provoking ideas from the, the mitzvah of Shnayim Mikra, to understand it as a mitzvah and to understand it as a, as a guide, ultimately, which, of course, mitzvahs, mitzvahs are. So having spoken about Ataras Vedivon, um, we move now a little bit to the negotiations between the two tribes and Moshe. I say the two tribes, we know there's two and a half tribes that settled there, but the half tribe of Manasseh was not involved in the negotiations. They're only brought in much later on <clears throat> when the land is really give, uh, uh, apportioned out. But in the early stages, it's been a God of moving. And even within those two tribes, B'nai God, who is not the oldest, Ruven is the Bechor, was the Bechor. I mean, he still has that status. But you see, that very quickly, it's really B'nai God who, who, who take the lead also, even in the negotiations. I want to take a look at, at uh, two or three uh, psukim and try and do justice to them. And that will be through the medium of the Malbim. And if there's anyone whose trademark is close reading of the words in the psukim, it's the Malbim. 
<coughs> so we're in Perak Lamed Beis, Pasuk Tet Zion. We've skipped a little bit from there saying there's all these territories, it's very fertile land, we have cattle, can we stay? Moshe initially castigates them because it seems like they, they don't want to go to war. And Moshe tells them that's not right. But now they, <coughs> they tell him that's not so. Which means either they were always planning on going to war, or they are now, after that reprimand from Moshe. Pasuk Ted Zayin, Vayumru. They approach him and say, We'll build enclosures for our, for our cattle, Varunatapenu, cities for our, our young. And we will go first in the war. So we want to take care of our, of our families, but we, we will go first in the war. Okay. Now, it's very well known that Moshe corrects them on a key point of priority. Namely, we've already seen in Pasuk Ted Zion, that they say we'll make enclosures for our cattle and cities for our children. Now, when Moshe goes over the negotiations and it goes two or three rounds, so Moshe says to them in Pasuk Kafdalad, Moshe has reversed the order. As if to, as if to say... <coughs> that's not the way to do it. It's not cattle first and children later. It's family first, we can borrow the expression, and then comes taking care of your cattle and your chattels and um, other possessions. That is a well-known point of correction, and indeed, they accept it. Meaning they stand corrected and, 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 and concede, because when they go over it again, they get the order right, first the children and then the animals. But if we look a little bit closer, we'll see something very interesting. The, the parshanut here is delicate because the truth is there's another key difference between what they offer and how Moshe plays their offer back to them. In Pasuk Yud Zion, as they offer to go to war, they say, We will... Go first, before the Jewish people, until we establish them in their places. They phrase their offer to go to war first as going, When Moshe replays that, he rephrases it in Pasuk Kaf. If you will do the following, they spoke about going chalutzim lifnei b'nei Yisrael. Moshe says, no. You go chalutzim lifnei Hashem. And what is the difference between those two expressions? <clears throat> it's a world of difference. Because really the question is, who's in the war? And who's overseeing the war? There is a notion that can happen, and somehow God and Reuven were initially possessed of this notion that if we're going to war, so we're doing the war. We'll go first. But who's there? It's us and the Jewish people, and we're first. And Moshe says, that's not, that's not how you go to war. Not if you're Jewish. You've got to go. But you're going before Hashem. Because in the end, your success 
will be overseen by him. In terms of approach, it's a, it's a gulf of difference, as we can appreciate. But it also could have practical ramifications. For what? For the very question we just discussed. What should they build first on this east side? For take care of their children first or take care of their animals first? They put the animals first. And that was considered a wrong thing. Says the Malbim, it's wrong. See the target question, I'll get to it later at the end. <coughs> it's wrong according to their approach. If we, if we hear the, the point of the Malbim coming through. The two approaches are, you think you're taking care of everything, or you understand Hashem is taking care of everything. If you think you're taking care of everything, there is no way that you could not deal with your children first. You've got to protect them. And it's just you. You can't leave them uh, at risk. So you've got, to, you've got to build for the children first before you do for the animals. There's only one way you could justify or excuse and perhaps give credence to the approach of taking care of the animals first and then the children. And that is, if you take a Lifnei Hashem approach, in the end, you're doing what needs to be done, but you understand that it's all in Hashem's hands. So as an expression of trust, if you have that trust, as an expression of the trust, maybe there's room to say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with the animals first. My children will be okay. Where does that come from? Trust in Hashem. In the fullness of time, I'll build things for them as well. To summarize what we just said in one sentence. To, put, to deal with the animals before the children is inexcusable if you think you're taking care of everything. How can you... Because no one's taking care of the children. Unless you do first. But if Hashem is taking care of, of everything, of course, you're acting and you're involved, the order is less of an issue. So we see these two questions of what's built first and before whom are you going to war are really interrelated. And with this in mind, just to see the, the, the dimension uh, added to the reading of the Pasuk by the Malbim. We've read Pasuk, Tet Zion, and Yud Zion. In Tet Zion, they say we'll build enclosures for our animals and then we'll build uh, cities for our children. And then they say, and we will go forth <coughs> before B'nai Yisrael. And now let's see Moshe's response. Pasuk Kaf. And the truth is there is, it's, it's, a, it's a subtle point here in Pasuk Kaf. But we try our best to be alert to these subtle points. Let's read Moshe, Moshe says, If you do this thing, If you go forth before Hashem la milchama. I think if you read this Pasuk many times, you take it for granted, but the word im is there twice. If you do this, if you do this. But how many conditions are there? Im means if the following. So it's a, it's a conditional thing. But Moshe splits it up into two. That bothers the Malbim. The two Im's. If this, if this. And what's the resolution? 
what Moshe is saying to these two tribes is, if if you do this thing, what thing? What you said you'd do, namely, to build for your animals before you build for your children, if you do that, that can only be the first if can only work if the second if. It's only excusable to deal with your animals first if you have the approach of going before Hashem. Because then if you have bitachon, there's, there's latitude in terms of what you do first. And if you want, you can do that. I'm not recommending it, but you can. But that will only work if you're going before Hashem la milchama. And now look at Pasuk Kav Gimel. But if you don't do this, you've sinned before Hashem. If you don't do this, meaning if you don't do what? So I think normally we have a very linear and binary approach to this Pasuk. If you go to war, such and such. If not, Meaning, if you don't go to war, that's a sin. But the Malbim says no. There are two different ways of going to war. If you go, as Pasuk Kaf says, before Hashem, that's the way to do it. And if you don't do that, meaning not if you don't go to war, but if you don't go to war, Lefnei Hashem, but rather you go to war the way you described it, Lefnei B'nei Yisrael. So have you sinned as far as the Jewish people are concerned? No, you've upheld your commitment, but you've sinned before Hashem because you took him out of the equation. That's a lack of bitachon. That's a sin before Hashem. To go to war not before Hashem is a sin before Hashem. And if you do, then what does Pasuk Kavdalet say? So you're back in your mindset. That is just you. So Pasuk Abdalit says, so you've got to build for your children first. How can, if you're taking care of everything, how can you not take care of your children first? The whole Parsha now opens up so differently in terms of these two approaches. To their praise, B'nai Gad and B'nai Ru'uvein actually ended up adopting the best of both suggestions. Because look what they say in Pasuk Kafdalit. They put their children first because they realized that's what you should do regardless. If you can choose either order, regardless, you put, you put the family first. But that doesn't mean they're still in their original mindset that it's just us. So it took a while to get things aligned for B'nai Gad and B'nai Ruvain, and their troubles weren't over. <coughs> but at this juncture, fundamentally, the message had been received in terms of the correct order, and more importantly, in terms of the, the um, correct way to approach all the things that they had offered to do. And that's really true for, for everyone. Not even not in a war situation, and even not in the Eva Hayarden and the two tribes, 
everyone is 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 involved in things and always has the the ongoing question <coughs> of how to look at it do they look as they're going lifnei whoever but it's not lifnei hashem or is it as moshe's uh, corrects the bnei gad bnei Ruven, that you need to act and be involved and act diligently and responsibly, etc. But never forget that you're acting before Hashem. That's a resounding message. It goes way beyond Parshas Matos. It, re- it really goes into the, the day-to-day involvements of, of the Jewish people for all, for all future generations. It's certainly a lesson worth um, absorbing and resonating with. Well, our final discussion this evening, I'd like to take a look at the final posuk of Parshas Maseh. And let's. So we missed out most of, almost all of Parshas Masse, but uh, it is the longest, I believe, unaided by uh, laning in the Torah. So we uh, can be forgiven for that. And let's see the final possible. Elah mitzvahs. These are the mitzvahs. Bahamishpatim, Ashiatsiva Hashem, Biyad Moshe, Albani Israel, Bavosma Avayoden Recho. These are the mitzvahs that Hashem uh, commanded Moshe towards B'nai Yisrael. These two words, Eilaha mitzvahs, also have become very famous. They're, they're, uh, they have become a catchphrase. And the reason why is because the Gemara says in a number of places in the beginning of Maseches Megillah and Shabbos and Dav Kufbez and elsewhere, Eilaha mitzvahs means that's it. There is no adding on to the mitzvahs, <coughs> certainly not in the way that Moshe received them. Moshe received the mitzvahs through prophecy. But a prophet can never have input from this stage onwards in the mitzvahs. In the words of the Gemara, Eile ha-mitzvos, these are the mitzvahs, Mikan she'ein ha-novi rashai l'chadesh dover me'ata. From here we see that from this point on, a novi cannot be mechadesh. Chachomim, it now becomes in the realm of the chachomim, of the bezdin, etc., of the Sanhedrin, but no longer in the realm of the Nevi'im. The, the content of the mitzvahs of the Torah was only ever in the hands of one Navi, and that's Moshe. All other Nevi'im have different jobs to do, to exhort the people to tshuva and to tell them about things that will happen to them, and so on and so forth, to amplify and emphasize the mitzvahs of the Torah, but, but, but there can be nothing added through the medium of Nevi'im. This indeed is the... Um, idea <coughs> also well known by the sister drosha, so to speak, for this idea, and that is Loba Shamaimi. Loba Shamaimi means the Torah is not in heaven. You have this famous case, uh, really became, uh, uh, went down in history, the snake oven, it's described, it's discussed in Masechet Bometzia and Daphnun Tess, where you have this oven, it was constructed in a way, it's not clear, could it be Mechabal Tumah, is it not Mechabal Tumah, the Chachamim said it can be Mechabal Tumah, Rabbi Eliezer, alone, said no, it is not Mechabal Tumah, it can't be Mechabal Tumah, in terms of its, in terms of its makeup, and they were fencing back and forth, and discussing back and forth, and no one was budging, they're not going to budge before him, but he wasn't budging before them, and it reached a point where Rabbi Eliezer began to call upon extraordinary measures in order to prove the veracity of his position. He starts calling for signs and wonders, and ultimately he calls for a baskal, for a heavenly voice, to aid him. And a baskal indeed came out and said, leave Rabbi Eliezer alone. Talach is like him. 
but they did not leave him alone. Rabbi Yeshua stood up and said, famously, Lo Shamayim, he, the Torah is not in heaven. We're very sorry. We're looking to get there, but as long as we're here, we're, we do not receive messages from there. Not about Torah. And the Gemara amplifies. What this means is, we're the Rabbim. We're the majority. And the Torah says, you follow the majority. <coughs> and that's what we're doing. Famous case of, of Loba Shamayim here. And it really goes together with this idea of Eilah HaMitzvahs. And in truth, there's room to ponder this concept. We say, <coughs> we say that we follow the majority wherever, wherever applicable, wherever practicable. Why? And Rabbi Chana Vassaman, in his Sefer Kuntras Divrei Sofrim, asks this question. It's, it, it, there, there is no more basic question than this. Why do we follow the majority? And there could be more than one way to, to respond to that question. Intuitively, of course, when in doubt, follow the majority. But why? Well, it could be, and maybe this is the simple way of looking at it, that the majority are more likely to be right than the minority. It's not guarantee, but it's more likely. And it's also, by the way, not even always true. But it's true more often than not. Which is very interesting. Because the concept of following the majority is based on, on how things work out the majority of times. More times than not, the more people that say something are likely to be, to be correct. Not always. Either way. But what can you do? I mean, you have to choose, and that's how you choose. So in other words, the right answer is out there somewhere, and the, the rove, the rabbim, have more of a chance of getting to that answer. That is the simple understanding, uh, say in layman's terms, of why we follow the majority. But it is possible that something else entirely is happening. And that brings us to the very definition of the concept of halacha. Halacha means the way to go, the way forward. <coughs> we have a principle which the Gemara mentions in a couple of places, in Maseches Erevin and Maseches Gittin, of Eilu ve'elu divrei Elohim Chaim. The, both these and these are the words of the living God when you have a machlokas. Now, now, what does that mean? And he's right, and he's right, and they're both right, and they both can't be right, and you're also right, and, 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 and what does it mean? But the point is, if the, if the discussion is conducted upon Torah principles, so there will always emerge a discrepancy, not always, but there could emerge a discrepancy as to which principle holds sway, or which principle should be primary in this situation. It could be. But they're all based on authentic and Torah true principles, so there is room for each voice. You can look at it this way, you look at it this way. In the end, you have to choose. But what you choose from all of the possibilities, is what Hashem wants you to do. In other words, built into the mandate of the Sanhedrin is that Hashem says, of all the possibilities, what do I want from the Jewish people? What I want from them is to do what the Sanhedrin tells them to do, based on their discussions and deliberations and conclusions. In other words, the, the majority defines the halacha. What does Hashem want? He wants you to do what the majority said. <coughs> and it's one of many voices. But if that's what they said, 
So then that becomes, that becomes, of all the right answers, that becomes the right one operationally. And therefore, if a baskol should say differently, we understand why we'll ignore it. It's not that we're, we feel bad that we got the wrong answer, but we have no choice but to ignore the right answer. By definition, once the majority have reached their conclusion, that for us is the right answer. If a baskol tells you differently, so that is an academic piece of knowledge. Namely, you should know that in heaven, they concluded differently. That may well be, but Hashem doesn't want you to do what they concluded in heaven. He wants you to do what they concluded here. That's why a baskol is ignored. It's a, it's a radical and revolutionary understanding of what the halacha is and what it means to follow the majority. But it will also explain to us something else. If we understand that the reason why we ignore a heavenly voice in matters of halacha is because the halacha by definition is what the, what the rove decided, that what the majority decided. What if the majority can't decide? What if the, the Sanhedrin is unable to, to arrive at a conclusion? At this point, they haven't discovered the halacha in terms of following the majority. It's unknown. And they have no way of knowing, if we can imagine such a situation. And a baskal comes out to tell them what the halacha is. They could accept it. Because it's not in conflict with, with a different definition of what the halacha is. They haven't made their decision, which now becomes the halacha, that this is offside of. They can't make a decision. So they can accept and take recourse to a baskal. So says the chidah. And in fact, <coughs> we're talking uh, uh, somewhat abstractly, but it happens to be there was a second baskal, which is not as famous as the first one, a second heavenly voice, which came out in matters of halacha, and it was accepted. And I'm referring to the baskal that came out on the side of Beis Hillel. The Gemara says, Masechus Erevin and Daf Yud Gimel, that Beis, that Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, they were arguing back and forth, and they, they couldn't see eye to eye with each other. And there's so many cases where, where, they, where they have Machlokasim. So who do we paskan like, and why? <coughs> says the Gemara, a baskol came out and said, uh, amazingly bringing these concepts together, Elu ve'elu divri elokim chayim. That's one of the places where the Gemara says it. Both these and these are words of the living God. 100%. But the Allah is like Beis And who's the Allah like? Beis And apparently, we all follow this Baskal. And Tosas wonder why. After all, if we learn anything from the snake oven case, which is such a famous case, it's, if you ever hear a Baskal about matters of Allah, be sure to ignore it. I mean, that's the moral of the story. And there they did. But in the Basila Beishama case, we took it on. What's the difference between these cases? I mean, that's Tosus doing what Tosus do best. As we know, Tosus's first commandment is, when learning Gemara, thou shalt not get carried away. If you have two baskals in Shas, and they seem to conflict with each other, you've got to make Seder. You've got to work it out. And Tosa say the difference is very simple. You know why we reject the Baskol in the snake oven case, but we accept it in the Beis Hillel case? 
Because in the snake oven case, it sided with the, with the lone opinion against the majority. We don't, we don't take note of a baskal if it's against the majority. Majority have decided. But here, Beis Hillel were the majority. So you can accept it. It's not the same. Which, of course, leads us to the follow-up question. If they're a majority, why do you need a baskal? Make up your mind. It's, it's, it's almost like either you ignore it or you don't need it. If it sides with the minority, you ignore it. If it sides with the majority, so the good news is it sides with the majority. The bad news is I don't need it because I have the majority. But the Hassam Sofer says a remarkable thing. It's in the Chuvas. In our Chaim Simon Reish Ches. There were more of Beis Hillel than there were of Beis Shammai. But Beis Shammai never gave in. Which is interesting, because Beis Shammai knows the Torah very well. And the Torah says, follow the majority. Why did Beis Shammai refuse to follow the majority? Now the Gemara says that Beis Shammai tended to be sharper than Beis Hillel. Beis Hillel were, of course, eminently qualified. But the, the real sharp minds you'd have in, in Beis Shammai. Not totally, but as a rule. And one of the reasons why, by the way, <coughs> is because Beishamai were much more selective in terms of who they'd allow into their academies in the first place. The forerunner of the Machlokas between Rabbi Gamliel and, Reb- and Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah that we spoke about last week, who to let into the Beishamedrash, was originally a Machlokas Beishelah Beishamai. According to Beishamai, you've really got to prove your mettle before you're even allowed in. So it's no wonder that Beishamai are on a higher and sharper level. You couldn't be part of them if you, if you weren't. Beis Hillel were broader. They allowed more people in. And because Beis Shammai were sharper, literally, the Gemara says, mm-hmm. so they, they, didn't, they didn't heed, accede to, to the rover Beis Hillel. But the question is, why not? The Torah still says, follow the majority. Says Chassam Sofer, you know what lies at the heart of that machlokas Beis Hillel Beis Shammai? Everyone agrees that you should follow the majority. The question is, define majority. Follow the many. The many what? Well, it could be the many people. But it could be something else. It could be the many arguments. Because what difference does it make if you have 10 people versus one, but they all agree to the same argument? What if this one person has 15 arguments and they're all, they're all good? So Beishamai weren't ignoring the concept of majority. They had a different definition of majority. As far as they're concerned, the majority is with us. We're fewer in number, but we're more numerous in arguments and in, in, in persuasion and in relevant points. And winning ideas. So you had a most um, incredible situation where you had these two groups and each one felt the rove was on their side. And from a certain point of view, it was. They're both right. Beishila were more numerous in number. <coughs> were more numerous. Uh, Beishama were more numerous in arguments. That's why it was gridlocked. And you can't bring out a Chumash and say... Follow the majority, because if you do, Beishama and Beishilel will both reply in unison at the same time, we are. That's why, in this case, with the, with the concept of majority being gridlocked, and the, it became impossible to arrive at the halacha anymore, 
At this stage, a baskal could come out and said, both these and these, like The baskal wasn't just paskening, wasn't just paskening like Beishila. The baskal was telling you that the, the Beishila's definition of rove is the right one. It's about rove people. You've got to be qualified, but more qualified people were, are, 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 are. <coughs> they're called the majority, not the one or two geniuses who, who, who can run circles around uh, everyone else. And, uh, and that allowed the halacha to move forward. At the end of the day, <coughs> the more we should ponder this idea, it really represents the partnership that we, that we represent, the Jewish people represented by the Sanhedrin, have with Hashem. This is the full meaning of the term Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. The giving of the Torah is not just the presentation of its commandments, but it's the giving over of the authority to the Sanhedrin to decide the halacha for the Jewish people here. <coughs> and that is the deeper element within the giving of the Torah. And we are in days now where the Gemara says that one of the re- things that precipitated the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash the Jewish people did not make with sufficient appreciation. So certainly the, the, how wonderful it is that we have occasion through our Parsha this week to involve ourselves in appreciating the concept of no sein ha-Torah, and that should be an, a, an addition, a welcome addition to our, our birchas ha-Torah. We should give it its due attention, its due space, and absorb its messages in Amit Hashem. Put us back along the road towards the Geula as we come back to Eretz Yisrael where the Torah is given in full. We say, We should be to see the fulfillment of this. Amen.